I really appreciate practical solutions. Whenever anybody gives me practical advice on how to do a job effectively or fix a problem efficiently, I, uh, I'm grateful. Even little things, helpful hints along the way, uh, I, I really appreciate. As a teen, I worked in a um, little store in, in my hometown of, of Huntingburg, and my boss taught me that lighter fluid is great for removing just about any gummy or sticky substance from things. I learned that I've kept a can of lighter fluid or bottle of lighter fluid in my shop uh, ever since. Use it almost weekly. Uh, it was one of the best little helpful hints I ever got on practical things like that. I've also learned some, some practical lessons the, the, the hard way. Have you? Let me share just a couple of them with you. When you shop at Target, don't wear a red shirt. <laughs> now, now, through the years, I've, I've had a lot of people approach me in stores with questions, assuming that I work there. I don't know why they just do. I don't know if I have that stock boy look or, or what it is. But I'm telling you, when you wear a red shirt to Target, you're asking for trouble. Might as well be wearing a target on your back because <laughs> you're going to get it, let me tell you. So that's just helpful practical advice. Here's another one. When you arrive in the parking lot at Disney World, in your excitement, do not exit the rental car and lock the doors before you turn off the engine and take your keys. I'm telling you, there's nothing magical in that moment when you realize you left the car running and you've locked the doors. Been there? I hope not. My appreciation for the pragmatic is also why I treasure the book of James, which for me is one of the most practical books in the New Testament. It's been a decade since I've preached a series from the book of James, and I think it's a good time to get practical again. Somebody said, you were only young once, but you can stay immature indefinitely. The book of James is filled with practical spiritual wisdom to help us grow up in Christ. Practical wisdom for, for some seems contradictory, but, but I don't believe it is. The ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle promoted the idea of practical wisdom. He reasoned that our fundamental social practices constantly demanded choices, our decisions, like how to be fair or how to confront risk or when and how to be angry, and that making the right decision demands wisdom. Or in other words, practical wisdom is figuring out the right way to do the right thing in any given circumstance. I like that. Figuring out the right way to do the right thing in any given circumstance. Now, James takes that concept of practical wisdom one step further and adds the all-important and necessary spiritual dimension, which makes James such a great book to study. In his brief letter, James doesn't provide just spiritual rules. He gives us spiritual tools to help us make the wisest of decisions and to apply practical wisdom to every aspect of our life. Filled with illustrative examples on how we ought to live, these five chapters are easily understood, just not easily lived out. That becomes obvious when James opens his letter to the first century church with what seems to us a contradiction. 
Look in verse 2 of chapter 1, if you have your Bibles open to the book of James. Are you there? Okay. Verse 2 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Now, who in their right mind considers such moments in life as an occasion for joy? Consider it pure joy. And James doesn't just say consider it joy when you encounter various trials. He says pure joy. In other words, genuine, sincere, none of this faking it kind of joy when you're in a crowd of people and then later you're miserable. He said this, consider it genuine joy. And by the word trial, James means an external adversity which provides a testing toward a potentially positive outcome. Now, that's where you got to look at this. James is talking about, all right, when the tough times come in your life and in my life, don't see them as something adverse. See them as something that will potentially end up making a positive impact on your life. The same word that James uses here was, was used to describe a bird who leaves the nest for the first time, anxious and fearful to test the new wings. But once the test is over, the bird soars on the currents of air. Trials in our lives, then, are filled with fear and anxiety, but the end result should help us soar. Now, none of us relish the idea of suffering through the tough times, but it is indeed a fact of life. We, we're just going to go through those kinds of times. Like we talked two weeks ago on Easter Sunday, we live in a Saturday world. The day between the tragic news of Friday's crucifixion and the terrific news of Sunday's resurrection. And in a Saturday world, remember, God is sometimes silent. But what James gives us here is the wisdom to get us through the moments of silence when you ask the question, why, God, would this happen to me? There isn't a week that goes by in the life of this congregation when some family or some individual is facing heartbreaking news. And in every case, there is this incredulous response. I've asked these questions. You've asked these questions. It's, you know, okay, God, I don't get what's happening to me. What did I do wrong that you are punishing me like this? And if this isn't from you, Lord, then why aren't you helping me get through it? It is that silence that causes us such problems. But notice what James says next in that passage that we just read. He says, the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and then perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Now, you and I need to remember that God is not the designer of the bad things in life. He is only the designer of the potential positive outcomes from the circumstances of our lives. I read about an artist who was dining uh, uh, at his, famous rest, uh, fa- his favorite restaurant. He was sitting out on the terrace in the patio area and noticed an ugly stain that had uh, come up on the wall that was there next to the terrace, and he asked the uh, owner of the restaurant if he could do some painting. And the owner said, well, sure, absolutely. 
who wouldn't want a famous artist doing some painting in, in his restaurant? And so later he came back with his artist supplies and he sat down and on that wall he took that ugly stain and used it as the basis to paint a beautiful picture around it. When he was all done, he'd taken an ordinary wall and made an extraordinary painting out of it. But he began with an ugly stain that he turned into this beautiful work of art. Now, I think that's what God does for us in this whole process of the trials that we go through. That's the essence of the story of Job. Job really never got an answer as to the question, why? But because he persevered in his faith in God and through the trial that had come on him, God, in the end, made something beautiful out of Job's story and life. Here then is the good news for us. When you practice patience with God and when you persevere through the tough times, then you will be mature, not lacking what you need to survive through this life as you love and serve God. So the question really shouldn't be, why is this happening to me? The deeper and more important question is this, how is my faith growing through this? Has my faith stood the test? Am I becoming a mature Christian as a result of what I'm experiencing in my life? You say, well, how do I know I'm maturing as a Christian? You know, when a child is growing up, you mark the door frame. But how do I know as a Christian I'm growing spiritually? Well, James offers us some marks of maturity here in these verses ahead. So so let's take a look at some of those. Uh, Here's a mark of maturity. The need for God's wisdom. Uh, Read with me in verse 5 and following. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like the wave of a sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. The first thing I think that needs to happen in this searching for maturity, you know, to, to, to analyze whether or not we're growing up in Christ, is to recognize our need for his wisdom, to recognize our lack of wisdom. One need not look far to see that there is a drought of wisdom around us. You have to wonder sometimes how some people get a job. I read this week about a man who called his car insurance company to tell them to change his address from Texas to Vermont. The woman who took the call asked where Vermont was. As he was trying to explain, she interrupted and said, look, I'm not stupid or anything, just tell me what state it's in. Our problem usually stems from the fact that while we recognize there is a dearth of wisdom in others, we seldom see the same lack of wisdom in ourselves. This absence of wisdom is more than don't touch a hot stove kind of wisdom. This is the spiritual kind that God desires us to have, to enjoy 
Uh, in 1 Corinthians 1.25, Paul writes this. He said, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. In other words, God is saying, you've got, you've got earthly wisdom, you've got human wisdom, but that's not enough. I want you to have wisdom that is greater than what you can gain on your own. So I've got wisdom I want to give you. If you're lacking it, just ask. True spiritual maturity begins when we acknowledge our lack of spiritual wisdom and our need for what God and God alone can offer us. And God's willing. says he'll give it to us generously. In other words, that word generously means without strings attached. When God gives us wisdom, you know, there's not, well, now if you do this and you do this and you do this, no, no strings attached. God is willing to give us. There is only one stipulation, that we ask in faith. In other words, you need to believe that God's wisdom is greater than your own. And you need to believe that if you ask, he will give. To think otherwise is to be like a person tossed on the waves. James paints these great word pictures throughout his letter. And one of them is that you just see this person rising and falling on the crest of the waves and the, and the valleys of those waves. To see someone rising and falling like that, but getting nowhere, is like the person who is trying to go throughout life without God's wisdom, rising and falling through the ups and downs of life, but getting absolutely nowhere. That's an empty faith, a faith that does not believe that God can give you what you need to get through the tough times. Elton Trueblood wrote, he said, an empty, meaningless faith may be worse than none. And I think he's right. When your faith has no depth to it, when your faith is empty, it's worse than not having any faith at all. Such a person, James says, is double-minded, or the word is actually, he has two souls, fickle, unstable, inconsistent, an apt description of somebody without God's wisdom. So you want to know how you're maturing in Christ through the tough times? First of all, say, okay, am I trying to do this and handle this on my own wisdom, or am I trusting God and asking for his divine wisdom? After all, God's foolishness is greater than our best wisdom. So if you're lacking wisdom, and I know I am, ask, ask. God said he'll give it. Here's another mark of maturity, the need for God's impartiality. Look in verses 9 and following in our text. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the man who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers uh, the plant. Its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Now, it's interesting to me that attitudes have changed little through the centuries. Wealth and poverty have always been in contrast with one another. And it's just one example of where we oftentimes draw lines. Folks with wealth or celebrity status uh, are often treated differently than folks with more an ordinary or poor circumstance. And James here suggests that those of humble circumstance shouldn't draw their 
their self-worth and their value from what other people think about them, but should draw their confidence from what God has done for them. So don't worry about what other people think about you. You, know, you draw your confidence from what God has done. You take pride in your high platform. The high position is what God has done for you that only he could do. And then James here suggests that those um, uh, who are, are rich— uh, who, by the world standards, are of some celebrity status. He said, you shouldn't boast about anything but what Christ has done for you. You should be humbled by the sacrifice of Christ. Not one penny of your wealth could accomplish what Christ did at the cross. Don't trust in what you possess because it won't last any longer than a flower in the scorching sun and wind. Now, here's the overall lesson. God loves both equally, the rich and the poor. And he's, impar- he's not, you know, partial to the rich over the poor. He's not partial to the poor over the rich. It's all about attitude. There are some people who are wealthy, who honor God first with all that they have. There are some people who are poor, whose only drive in life is to become rich. You see, it's not about what you have or you don't have. It's about what your attitude is toward what you possess. And what God wants us to do is to be able to see what we have as tools to be used for him. This theme of learning to be impartial. We are all in this boat together. So here are a couple lessons that come to mind. You've heard the old expression, don't judge a book by its cover. Well, don't. Don't pass judgment on other people based on external appearances. How many of you have ever had a bird for a pet? Let me see your hands. You know, sometime in your life, you had a bird. Really? Not, uh, our girls, we had uh, some, some zebra finches when the girls were young. We had uh, uh, a parakeet named Snowflake when the girls uh, were young. I know a lot of people who keep birds uh, around, uh, you know, just as pets, the cheerful sounds and the chirps and the singing and all that kind of good stuff, you know, canaries and, and cockatoos and all, all kinds of things like that. How many of you have ever had a buzzard for a pet? Anybody? It's kind, kind of what I figured. I have never met anyone who has had a vulture or a buzzard for a pet. For good reason, I suppose. But are you aware of this? Despite its ugly appearance, a vulture's role is to keep this world beautiful. You ever stop to think about that? Its presence may not be endearing, but the Creator designed the vulture with unique capabilities that we benefit from. Possessing incredible eyesight, an extraordinary sense of smell, and one of the strongest digestive acids in the world, the vulture devours the dead of this planet. Have you ever stopped to think what a nasty place this world would be if it weren't for buzzards and their role? Now, not only did God provide a wonderful gift in the buzzard, he teaches us an important life lesson. Here it is. Outward appearances, outward appearances is no indication of a person's worth. In a culture so enamored with looks and wealth and celebrity, it's vital to remember that inner beauty is far more valuable. Be appreciative of what others do to make this world a better place. Treat everyone with respect. Because remember, Christ died for all without partiality. So the next time you see a buzzard soaring on the thermals, just remember God's lesson on how to treat others. God is impartial, 
And in the body of Christ, he wants us to be as well. Here's another lesson I think that grows out of this, and that is don't try to be something you're not. Now, I've got to tell you, James is going to come back to this, this theme several times in, in the book on, on impartiality. So, so don't try to be something you're not. I was reminded of that a few months back with, uh, with Addie. She was at our house, and Addie so enjoys sitting with Elsie uh, at, uh, at the piano. She'll just sit on Elsie's lap and, for well, she would probably for hours if, if we would, if, if they could go that long. But she just loves to sit there and listen to Elsie play. And Elsie plays the piano so, so well. And, and when Elsie was out of the room, in an effort to fill that gap, I sat down at the piano to play with her. I tried plunking out a song. And we weren't 30 seconds into the song before Addie looked at me and she said, Need batteries, da. Here is my granddaughter, at that time less than two years old, who concluded the piano's batteries were going bad. And they don't even have batteries. <laughs> be yourself. Don't try to be something you're not. Don't try to accomplish something you can't. Find your significance and your contentment in your relationship with God. So you aren't rich like your neighbors. Big deal. You just be faithful what you've got and honor God with it. So you don't have all the degrees behind your name like your coworker does. Big deal. You just use your talents and abilities to honor God. So you're successful and richer than most people around you. Big deal. You just honor God with what you have without looking down on anyone else. Don't envy somebody up. Don't look down on somebody that you consider below you. You didn't get to where you are all by yourself. All of us are eventually headed for the same six-foot plot of soil. So spend your life serving God while you can and treating others as equals. Maturing is recognizing that we need to be impartial to one another as God has been impartial to all of us. Here's the last thing quickly, and that is the need for God's strength. That's another sign of maturity. Look in verse 12 and following. It says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone else. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. In this passage, James returns to his original theme, but words it slightly different. Instead of saying, consider it pure joy when you encounter trials, he said, blessed is the person who perseveres through the tough times. It's like bookends on this passage. You'll be blessed when you persevere under trial, but as you persevere, learn this lesson. When you are tempted to sin, stop looking for someone else to blame. Most of the time, when we go through the trials and the temptations of our life, we're always looking to blame somebody. And, and most of the time, it's easiest to blame God. How childish. There's nothing mature about that. 
James reminds us that God is incapable of being tempted or of tempting anyone else. God doesn't want you to sin. God doesn't want you to fail. God gives you the ability to handle it. God gives you the means to escape whatever the trial may bring into your life. Remember, God can take it and potentially bring good out of it if you will persevere. But the pattern is always the same. Once we give in to the temptation, then we sin. And once we have sin, then it becomes a pattern of more sin. And that sin leads to death. The following quote has been attributed to lots of different authors. So I don't know where it first originated. But it is worth repeating. So a thought, reap an action. So an action, reap a habit. So a habit, reap a character. So a character, reap a destiny. Now that works both positively and negatively. But when it is sin that is sown, death is the destiny. In contrast to our trials and temptations, God is the giver of good gifts. So we should not be surprised that he chose to give us the chance at a new birth. And that calls for your decision. Remember, practical wisdom, true wisdom, is deciding the right way to do the right thing in any given circumstance. This is decision day, and the choice is yours to make. Are you going to seek the wisdom of God, or are you going to try and go it alone throughout life? How are you going to endure the tough times if you're relying simply on your own wisdom to guide you? I mean, don't you need more than what you can dredge up in your own mind? I, I know I do. How are you going to survive without a church family? How are you going to get through and, and be encouraged if you're, if you're walking through life alone? I believe the wise decision, the right decision, is to decide for Christ. Can I tell you the wisest decision you'll ever make, the most pragmatic decision you'll ever make, the most everlasting decision you'll ever make is to give your life and allegiance, your heart and your soul to Jesus Christ as Savior. Don't put it off. Please don't put it off. There's nothing mature or wise about putting it off. You can acknowledge him as Lord and Savior today. You can be baptized today. And if you're already an immersed believer and you're looking for a church home, I'm telling you, you found it here. We want you. You might find other places that you can be at home, but I'll, I'll tell you, you'll never find a place that will love you more and need you more than, than we do right here. Practical wisdom is making the right choice at the right time. And the time is now. And the choice is yours. And Jesus invites you to him.